Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Monday, January the 23rd. This is episode 825 of the Survival Podcast. And today, even though it's a Monday, we're doing a Friday show. A Friday show in that. Today's show is all about people that picked up their phone in the last week or two, mashed some numbers, and the numbers they mashed were 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. Again, 866-65-THINK. They called the THINK line, and in two minutes or less, they gave me their question or their opinion. They were specific to the point they didn't call while running a weed eater or chainsaw. Nobody did that in the last batch of calls. Somebody did call from inside what sounded like a tin can, like a giant tin can. Like if you ever saw the movie Strange Brew and the big tank the guy was in, it sounded like he was in there with reverberation, and I was not able to use that call. So a quiet area when you make your call, getting direct and to the point, and emulating the callers you'll hear today. Best way to get yourself on a show like this. We're doing this show today on a Monday because I was gone all week at SHOT Show last week and Friday I was not here. These shows take a lot more time for me to do, so I have a tendency to put them off when it's convenient to do so. So my thought was we'll go ahead and we'll catch up on this. I'll do a listener feedback show tomorrow, the one we usually do on Monday, which is where you guys send me stuff by email. Wednesday and Thursday we'll have guest spots, and we'll be back to another Friday show on Friday this week. So that means there's a lot of opportunity to get on the air with these calls. It's probably more likely you'll get on the show with a call than with an email. I get about 400 emails a day. I get about 20 calls a week. I use about 10. That's a 50% shot. Email, I get 400 a day. I use you know, 10, 12, 13 in a show. That's like a 1% shot when you add it all up. So there you go. Before we get into your topics or your, your calls today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Harvest Eating. That's Chef Keith Snow, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Now, what do you want to go to Harvest Eating for if you're a prepper? Well, you probably store all kinds of stuff. You probably go to farmer's markets and CSAs and get in touch with your local food supply. You probably grow all kinds of stuff, and maybe when you start growing, buying, and, 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 and storing, you end up with a whole bunch of stuff, and you're not sure how to cook it. You're not sure how to cook it because it's new to you. Well, Chef Keith Snow will teach you to keep cook seasonally and locally. And if you're heavy on the carnivore side like I am and you like a good steak, check out his steak seasoning. That stuff is just bad to the bone. Uh, next up today, check out emergencyessentials.com. They're at beprepared.com. So prepared, I guess they're more prepared than the Boy Scouts because they got the beprepared.com domain before the Boy Scouts did. Uh, Emergency Essentials really specializes in long-term storage food and other items for your prepping needs. They have a great resource section of their website as well to help you get started and put your household in order. Uh, things like food calculators to make sure you have enough food stored for your household, etc. They also have a great catalog, so make sure you request that. Again, Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. As always, the best way to make sure that you're dealing with an official survivalpodcast.com sponsor, go to the survivalpodcast.com and select their banners from the right-hand margin so you know you're dealing with an actual personal endorsement by me uh, and signed off on by our listener ad council rather than some cheap imitator because they are out there. I'll just say it. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. 
Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and if you're military, law enforcement, active duty, or prior service, or Peace Corps, uh, same thing, send me your uh, details of your service. Don't I just sent another one today, you guys, photocopying your ID cards and stuff like that. I don't need that. Just send me details of your service, and I will send you a special discount code. Uh, to thank you for your uh, for your uh, service to our country, so you get a special discount to the Member Support Brigade. Before I take your first call, i got a couple announcements today. One is on Member Support Brigade. For those who don't know, if you're a new listener, Member Support Brigade is a way that you support the show at about $0.20 cents an episode that comes out to $50 a year. Most of the people doing it do it by PayPal. Those who do it by check or money, order, or silver, and pay by the mail. Nothing I'm about to say applies to you at all because you have to manage renew anyway. Those who pay by PayPal, when you sign up, it tells you twice before you sign up and twice after you sign up that it's an automatic renewing subscription. Every once in a while, somebody doesn't read that. A year later, if they join by a yearly or a month later, if they join by a monthly or what have you, uh, they get charged on their PayPal account. And then they send me a big hate email saying they didn't know. Well, I'm telling you now. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty upfront. I've even sent screenshots to people where it says it one, two, three, and four times, including an email that comes after. So it's not like anything is, is hidden. If you don't want to renew, it's very easy. And I want to make something very clear about partly why I use PayPal, because some people ask that. Number one, I use PayPal because I tell you not to use credit cards. You can run your PayPal account simply by receiving payments from others. You can attach it to a bank account. You can do it with a credit card. It's up to you. But I don't take credit cards, and I can't take a credit card after I tell you not to use a credit card. Okay? Just can't do it. It would be ethically and morally wrong. The second reason, and this is the more important reason, this is something you need to know. Don't skip this, even if you know you don't care, you're not an MSB member, you don't plan on canceling or anything like that. It's very important to know about PayPal and in the online world. In PayPal, no one, let me say this again, no one can ever charge a dime against your PayPal account. I cannot run a charge against your PayPal account. It's impossible. I can't do it. If I have your credit card number and a merchant account, I can charge your credit card. And if I'm nefarious, I can charge you for any amount I want. I cannot charge one penny against your PayPal account. Then you say, Jack, how, however do you get paid? You send me money with PayPal. Or you send anybody. If you buy something on eBay and then you make a payment with PayPal to pay them, you're sending the money. When you set up a recurring subscription with a service like PayPal, you're setting up a, a, an advanced subscription so that you will send money on a certain day at a certain frequency uh, all the time. So if it's $50 a year, every year on that anniversary, your account sends the money. The vendor does not charge it. I do. I, that's why I love PayPal. Those of you that think they're anti-gun, they're no more anti-gun than they're anti-cigarette, anti-alcohol, or anti-American Indian because you can't sell or buy American Indian artifacts with them either. PayPal does that because it's interstate commerce, federally regulated materials. And understand, PayPal works in this world between banks and merchant accounts, and they're really neither one. So they, they've been able to get by by abstaining from certain things, and that is one of them. But you are always in control. I had a couple people, because I had a bunch of renewals come in while I was in Vegas, two different ones reported me to PayPal for fraud. Fraud. Before they emailed me and said, hey, dude, I didn't realize I got charged a second time, and I'd wonder if you could fix this for me. If that ever happens, if you thought you canceled and you didn't, and you get charged and you email me, I will promptly refund your money. And I will generally, when somebody says something like, you know, we lost a job or something, give you a few months for free as a thank you for your past support. That's the way I do business, right? If you report me for fraud, here's what happens. PayPal puts a hold on the funds. I can't refund you now. 
PayPal launches an investigation. I have to respond to it. It takes about a week for it to play out. They always side with me because I do everything above board. And then a week later, I'll give you the refund I would have given you a week ago. That's how PayPal works. Wanted you to know that. Next one, total screw up by Jack. I don't know why I said this, but when I screw up, I admit it, even when it's not really that important uh, that I admit it. And there's one. I crammed three shows into one day last week. Actually, four shows because the day of and then three more. I crammed them in last week. And one was a listener question show, call and show like we're doing today. And somebody asked about picking between uh, a 308 or a 223 on their first AR-15, uh, AR, AR platform. And, of course, the, the 556 is a, a AR-15 platform, M4, whatever you want to call it. And the 308 is an AR-10. And uh, they're different frames. And I said that you could put a 223 on a 308. Uh, 223 uh, upper on a 308 lower or vice versa. I don't know why I said that. I was having a brain fart. I don't even know what I was thinking of when I saw comments saying, Jack, you can't do that. I was like, I did not say that. I did not say that. And I'm like, I listened to the episode on my iPhone, and I'm like, I said that. I don't know why. So anyway, that was the mistake. Um, the uh, the 308 platform and the 223 platform lowers are uh, different. They're a different size. They have a different size magazine. Well, they don't mate up together. Um, you can do things like, you know, get a custom upper and 204 Ruger. You can do things like the Grindel. You can do things like you can get a custom uh, upper in something like 243 on the AR-10, the 308 platform. So maybe I was thinking that. I don't know what else. I apologize for saying some dumbass thing. Everybody's going to say a dumbass thing once in a while. There's mine. Boy, I ate up a lot at the beginning of today's show. Let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack. This is Neil, Outdoor Fury on the forum, long-time listener and first-time caller. Um, so my question to you is, I started a little prepper group, if you will, nothing like going out into uh, the wilderness and surviving on a plot of 50 acres with a bunch of people, but a group to get together and um, meet and make a community and share skills uh, all the way around. And we started out with two less than a year ago, and I've got up to about 30 now. Uh, my question is, how do I keep interest for a group of people that has someone who is, uh, or a group, uh, people who are very prepared to people who are not very prepared, you know, just beginners? It's, it's been difficult for me to uh, be able to go all, all encompassing there. So if you could comment on how you could uh, uh, do some advanced community building skills when you have the interest but you have a very wide skill range. I would really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, it's interesting because, honestly, it's the same challenge I face with the show. Uh, today we're doing episode 825. By the way, another Jack screw-up. Uh, there is no episode 823. I accidentally put uh, skipped an episode when I was pre-doing them, and there will never be an episode 823. Those have emailed me about that. Um, anyway, um, it's the same thing I you know deal with every day. 823, 825 episodes, whatever you want to call it. Um, I have to come up with stuff that uh, takes care of people who have been doing this their whole lives. And I have to put together stuff that makes people who are brand new feel like it's something that they can do without feeling overwhelmed. So it is a challenge for me. It will always be a challenge for anybody engaging in what you're doing. First, though, let me say congratulations. Uh, seriously. Uh, you've done something many people talk about doing, and very few people actually do by putting together that group. So that's awesome. couple suggestions. One thing you could do 
is get your more experienced members of the group to each time the group meets, one of those experienced members and rotate this, right? Get, if you're, if you know so much, then you should help teach and you'll learn by, I've learned more in four years of doing this show than I learned in the first 36 years of my life being taught it by my family because I started to teach it. Right? So have an experienced member do a 10-minute mini-session on some simple thing each episode. Uh, also make your group meetings less about a presentation or workshop thing and more of a social event. Um, let people ask each other what they want to know. When somebody has a question and somebody wants to answer it, do it more of a roundtable. Get people engaged with each other. Get people talking with each other. On some levels, don't even make it about prepping. Understand that the basics of prepping are pretty simple. We need to account for our survival needs, food, shelter, water, energy, security, uh, etc., right? Um, and we need to be prepared in the event of systemic failures. And there's all different kinds of things that we can do. But the, the biggest thing that we need to be able to do is have networks of people who have strong relationships, who can share resources and come together in a time of crisis to keep a lid on things. That's the biggest value that your group has to offer. So focus more on the relationships than the content. Maybe get together once in a while and just do something fun. Go play paintball, right? Uh, if you have people that maybe you know don't want to go play paintball, go bowling. I'm dead serious about that. Anybody can bowl. A 68-year-old person in a wheelchair can bowl. You need little bumpers that come up in most bowling alleys now for the people that completely suck. Go to a bar and drink a beer together. If you're not into drinking, go fishing. Um, have a picnic, right? Go just be together in some way, shape, or form, and let things take on a little bit more of their own life. I like the structure to a degree. I think that having you know maybe one meeting a month where you put some real structure into it and do a workshop or something is a great idea. But I think the biggest thing you can do is get the other members of the group that are quote unquote advanced, right? The advanced people presenting on topics. I'll also tell you that the depth that can be gone into of the topics is immense. If you look at my show and some of the things we've covered, uh, not everything has to be about beans, bullets, and band-aids, right? We can look at things like in-depth things on homesteading and permaculture and stuff like that. And here's the reality. If you do a good job of explaining the concepts, there's no such thing as too advanced with those subjects because all it comes down to is producing your own food. So anybody can understand. You look at something like Hugel culture, which is you know burying wood and say, well, it's advanced. It's not advanced. It's a big log. Throw dirt on top of it and plant shit into it, right? Uh, so there's a million subjects you can cover. I can't believe you're meeting any more than once a week. Uh, odds are you're meeting like once or twice a month. Uh, so I don't think there's really a big challenge there. But I think if you try to regiment it too much, where there's always a presentation of 30 minutes long or something like that, it may be very difficult unless you happen to have someone in your group who can just do that every time and keep people's attention. Fortunately for people like me whose talent is being in an audio programming, not everybody can do that. That's what makes... That's what makes us able to be uh, successful as a business because not just anybody can do that. So if you're lucky to have one of those people, great. But try to make it more of a social engagement. And I would advise anybody putting together a group to, to focus on that. Focus on the community aspects of things. And there's a lot of things you guys could be doing like putting together a, a plan for and expanding the group. How do, we, how do we get more people involved? How do we get neighbors to come? Um, putting together programs like that, putting together 
how do you, maybe you take your prepper group and you do things like, okay, uh, I know that the people in my neighborhood are not that likely to come to a prepper's meeting, but I'm the prepper in my neighborhood, so maybe I'm the guy that heads up organizing a neighborhood watch. Or maybe I'm the guy that heads up organizing a community meeting in my neighborhood for gardening and permaculture or what have you to create more food on site so that we have less pressure and less problems in a catastrophe. Maybe these people don't even need to know that I'm a prepper. And maybe as I do that, I report back to the group. So it's, you make your group, it's yours. You do whatever you want to. Those are just some suggestions. But the big thing is focus on enjoying being together with like-minded people. Uh, when I was up in the Northeast, there were a lot of things out there called gun clubs, which were basically bars where a bunch of guys that like to shoot and hunt and fish would get together and drink beer. There was a lot of talk about hunting and fishing when you were there, but basically it was hanging out with people that you liked being around. Make your group focus primarily on that. I think you'll have a lot of success with it. And again, congratulations on building that level of success already. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Charles in Iowa again. I just recently called with a question, but I also have another one, so I'll just let you... Uh, decide which one is best and most appropriate, and hopefully you'll take one of them on the air. Uh, I recently have sold a house in a suburb. My wife and I are very happy to be out of that, and we're renting a farmhouse. And with the equity in the home, we've purchased some, about 15 acres of timbered land, and we hope to at some point build on there very affordably. My question is, in the meantime, we've got, just in round terms, We'll say we've got about fifty to sixty thousand dollars of non-retirement savings now that we've got some equity out of our home, and I'm wondering what you would do with that kind of money, uh, given that you've got about an annual net income of about the same. Um, how would you divvy that up between precious metals and just cold, hard cash? We do want to have some liquidity here to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. We've also got about $50,000 of debt on that timbered property. And uh, so I know you can't answer that. You're not a financial planner uh, directly, but some things to think about with regards to protecting ourselves from deflation and having cash on hand versus protecting ourselves from inflation and and uh, not having all that cash just getting burnt up by uh, the inflation that the Federal Reserve is trying to accomplish. Thanks, Jack. Okay, you got a little bit of all over the place kind of thing going on there, but let me see if I can bring you. First of all, um, you have uh, an exact amount of debt, it seems like, on your property equivalent to your cash. Um, I'm not going to tell you to take the money and pay off the land. I am going to tell you to think about accelerating your land payoff. And if you need to use some of that money, as much as 25% of that money to facilitate that, please do so. Get your land paid off so that by the time you're building there, your only real expense is um, um, the building expense itself, which you can do uh, quite a bit with under $100,000. And even if, and remember, the one type of debt I'm okay with is real estate debt as long as you can pay it and as long as it doesn't stress you and as long as you can easily make payments for six months if you lost your income while you figure out where your next income is. I have no problem with real estate debt. All other debt I see is evil. Land is real estate debt whether there's a house on it or not. So I'm okay with the debt. So, uh, But I would not be afraid to use some of that money toward a further accelerated debt reduction on the, on the loan on the property. 
How much exactly and how to go about it would depend on the terms. If you have a five-year note on the property and you have a five-year plan, I might not even worry about accelerating the payments on it. If you have a 30-year land note or something like that, that's a totally different scenario. Now we got to look at really speeding that up because that's a lot of debt to carry with uh, construction costs on top of it. And if it's construction costs, we're also going to – this is, I think, a lot of people don't think about. When you go to build a house on raw land, you got utility uh, to put in. Right, and if there's no city water, then you got water to put in. You got a well. You're looking at eight, nine grand for a well in most instances. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's a fair average. Um, if you have, you know, a lot of times electrical, uh, they'll give you the first hundred feet or something like that. But if you're so far off their easement, you're gonna pay by the foot to bring the electricity in, and it ain't cheap. So there's a, and same with water. Like even if you can get city water, a lot of times people end up in a decision. Okay, if it's, you know, w which one do I go? Here, a little side note. If I had a choice between paying, let's say, $5,000 because I was far enough away from the main, the water main, for city water and $8,000 for a well, I'm going to buy the well. I'm going to buy the well and spend the extra money. If it's going to be like $500 bucks for a city water installation and then the well's going to be eight grand, I'm probably going to go city water installation unless I have a really fat surplus of cash to work with. So just some thoughts on that. Now, what do you do with your sixty grand? Uh, since you're worried about liquidity, cash. Stop freaking out about inflation. Let me tell you, let me tell you guys that are freaking, inflation's gonna eat away all my money. Let me tell you the truth about that. If you were holding stocks or bonds or any commodity and this hyperinflationary curve hits that everybody's freaking out about, do you know what you're gonna wanna do? You're gonna wanna liquidate it to cash as quickly as possible. And then you're either going to want to hold it so you have cash at a time when cash is at a premium. Because when inflation hits, trust me, baby, trust me, it's not like you're throwing it away and wiping your butt with it. It's not like you're putting it in a wheelbarrow like Weimar Germany. We had Fernando on the show. He went through it in Argentina. There were weeks where cash was king and weeks when gold was king and it swung back and forth. And you need some cash. So you're going to be liquidating the cash. If you decide you want to get the cash out of your hands, it's going that fast. Then what you're going to end up doing is you're not going to buy gold. You're not going to buy gold with it. Stop it. Stop it, please. Damn it. Once this thing starts running away, you're not going to buy gold with it because you can't eat it. Okay? You can't. And as it starts to run away, you're just chasing. You're trying to catch a falling knife at that point. You're going to buy stuff. You're going to buy food, shelter, water, energy, security. So if you're holding cash and you start to feel that you have a runaway inflation, you don't have to liquidate the cash before you spend it. Now, that's if everything goes haywire. Now, let's go if everything doesn't go haywire. If you have a plan to build on the property, and this money is allocated to help with that construction project there, buddy, then what you need to do is you need to keep that as safe and as liquid as possible so that you can, in fact, use it for that express purpose. So you might do something like put it in staggered three uh, CDs over a three-year ladder uh, using someone like AIG, uh, not AIG, ING Direct, and getting the best rates you can with a CD and get two or three percent, and that'll take care of your short-term inflation and keep you close to par anyway. Um, and, and that might be the most risky thing I would do with that money if you have it planned for short-term liquidity. 
And uh, you might even just all do it in one-year CDs without the laddering. You might do it in one-year CDs but, but put a third in. You might put a third in a bank account, and you might put a third into a money market account. Don't put it all in one place. If we do have a bank failure, even though you're probably not going to lose your money, it might be tied up for a while. So by keeping it in different buckets, it's easier to get at. But keep it in cash and cash-equivalent assets if you're concerned about liquidity. Stop freaking out. Stop freaking out. Stop listening to G. Gordon Liddy on Fox News tell you you need to buy gold. Gold, silver, 5% of your net worth. Both metals, well, let's say gold is kind of high right now. Silver's in a mid-tier area. Um, I wouldn't have a problem with buying some right now. But if I was sitting on 60 grand, uh, I wouldn't go out and dump it into silver and gold. I absolutely would not do it. I would not dump it into municipal bonds. If I did put it into municipal bonds, I would look for a very strong municipality to buy a bond in. I would buy a relatively short-term bond, and I would make sure the damn thing is a marketable security, meaning I have the option of selling it before its term comes to an end. Uh, that's kind of where I would go with any of that stuff right now. Now, people are saying, well, Jack, you said the municipal bond market is going to fall on its ass. It is. That's why I would make sure it's marketable, and that's why I would buy from a secure municipality that's got its books managed well, because all the other ones are going to start catering in before they ever get down to that one. And when I see all of them start to cater in, crater in, I'm going to go ahead and dump mine. That's why I want a marketable security. So there you go. But the easy answer to that: hold cash. Don't freak out. Next question. Hey, Jack, this is Yoshi from the forum. I'm in the Philadelphia area. First, I'd like to say thank you for all that you do. Uh, I have a question as it relates to the paleo diet and long-term food storage. Um, my understanding is that when you're doing long-term food storage, you want to basically get a rotation of food so you can uh, eat some of it, replace it, so you're not just storing a whole bunch and leaving it sit there forever. However, It seems like most of the food that people are storing as part of long-term storage and then eating on a regular basis would be all of the things, essentially, that the paleo diet tells you that you probably should not eat. So my question to you is, do you have some suggestions for um, what kinds of foods I would be able to eat in, and restore or replace on a regular basis that would be paleo-friendly, bearing in mind that they would probably want to have some grains and rice and things like that, so if the shit hits the fan, I'm not really going to be worried about the paleo diet so much as just having food on the table. Uh, thank you again. I look forward to hopefully hearing from you. Uh, have a good day. Bye. Okay, for those that maybe haven't heard the earlier shows that I did on this, uh, I, I went on a paleo-style diet, uh, lackluster, I would say, in January. And then uh, about the end of summer, I went on a full tilt bore. And I lost over 70 pounds, and I feel healthier and more vibrant and more energized than I ever have, and I could probably lose about 20 more pounds total, which will take a lot longer than the first 70. And then I would weigh what I did as a, as a senior graduate from high school, and I don't think I need to be any, any leader than that, honest to God, since I actually am taller now than when I graduated school. Um, but it's worked out very well. And I'm a huge advocate of it because I've felt, seen, and experienced the results for myself. And it's basically uh, living on a diet that's high in protein, uh, high in fat, very, very low in carbohydrate. And it's done through the construction of the foods that we consume. And I'll tell you the big things that you don't eat. 
You don't eat most legumes, so your dried beans and, and stuff are out. You don't eat rice. You don't eat wheat and barley and white potatoes. Those are your big ones. Uh, so wheat includes things like pasta. Right? And you don't eat white rice. In fact, you don't eat rice at all. Um, that said, you can eat some rice once in a while. And you can eat some potatoes once in a while. But they are not staples of your diet. And they are very moderate components of your diet. And if you eat more than just a little bit, it's once in a while and it's kind of a treat. Um, for some people, it, it completely changes their life for the better. Because there's a lot of people out there with various uh, levels of what's called celiac disease which means they have a gluten intolerance, and it, it literally is like giving yourself an autoimmune condition every time you eat something with gluten, which includes wheat and many other things that are off limits. And there's people that have extreme uh, examples of this. There's people with very moderate versions of celiacs that don't even know they have it. They really aren't quite sure why they have this improvement. So it's a great way to eat, and it's modeled off the way that human beings ate for hundreds and thousands of years before the dawn of modern agriculture when we started eating, you know, grains as a primary source of food. Uh, the human body is optimized to run on something that you're going to have a hard time with if you've never heard this before, but it's fat. Um, if you eat sugar, uh, it, it, it is converted to simpler sugars and put into your blood and ups your sugar level and it's burnt as glucose in the body and the excess is converted back to fat and stored. If you eat protein, it's also converted to glucose, it spikes glucose in the blood. If you eat 100 grams of protein, it is the same as eating 60 grams of carbohydrate. You get about a 60% conversion ratio. I learned that from Dr. Greg Ellis. That means that you can actually put yourself into a high blood sugar uh, situation even on a very protein-rich diet because the protein will convert to glucose. That does not convert to glucose. Your body will burn fat as fat. Flat out. Okay? So it doesn't spike blood glucose. So this is one of the... I'm not going to go any deeper than that today. But the question is, if I'm going to avoid all these starches and things like that, what can I store? You store meat. You store vegetables. You store fruit. I do eat fruit. People say, there's sugar in fruit. Yeah, but, you know, if I eat one orange today, it's not going to be that big a deal if most of my other calories come primarily from fat and, and meat. How do I store meat? I can it. I freeze it, I turn it into biltong, I turn it into jerky, um, I raise my own and keep it on the hoof until it's time to consume it, I hunt and gather and I take it as I need it so that I don't have to store it. There's many ways to do this. I did an entire episode on paleo uh, prepping, and I'll put a link in today's show notes. But the big thing, and this is the one, this is what drives me nuts about folks with paleo, is people make it like it's a big deal to do, like it's complicated. Now, if we get rid of white potatoes, rice, wheat, and, and, and your typical legumes, so when I say typical legumes, like a green bean or a pea, you know, that type of thing, that's okay. Uh, it's primarily a green vegetable, okay. So the stuff that comes in a pod, right, where the bean is not fully developed, or the peas like snow peas and sugar peas, sugar snap peas and that type of thing, that's all on the menu. So I just get rid of those other things, and that's it. So then I just have to say to myself, well, how do I store meat? Well, how do I do long-term meat stores? I go to Mountain House and I buy pork chops and I buy ground beef crumbles and stuff like that for long-term. How do I do my short-term? I can my own meat. I find good quality canned meats to buy, what have you. Um, don't be afraid to use your freaking freezer, man. Um, if, if you have a catastrophic failure, we can start taking that meat out of there and cooking it rapidly, jerking it, uh, biltonging it, whatever we have to do, using our reserve systems to can it. But, hey, it works for now, so why not use it? So those are my thoughts. 
thoughts there. Tune into my episode on paleo prepping if you want more on paleo prepping. Just understand, it's not the challenge that people seem to be making it out to be. Now, what do you do with all the rice and beans and wheat and pasta and crap you already have stored? I'll tell you what I did with mine. I made sure that it's all stored really good. I put it up to long-term storage. And if we ever need it, it's there. And I would eat it. It's a survival food. And that's exactly what grains are in my view today. They keep you alive when there's nothing else available. And should we end up in kind of a midterm crisis to short-term crisis where my neighbors need to be fed, I'll eat the meat and they get the beans and the pasta and the rice. And it's easier to feed my neighbors than shoot my neighbors when they're hungry. Very, very simplistic. Very easy to do. Not complicated at all. Let's go ahead and take another call. Uh, Jack, this is AJ again. Hey, I just went to a class by Samuel Bashan, an Israeli, a retired Israeli Secret Service agent. He taught a lot about the uh, mind of a suicide bomber. I looked at a lot of his video, looked at a lot of his uh, anecdotal uh, stuff that he was given to us, and it, it dawned on me, Israel smaller than the smallest state, uh, almost smaller than the smallest state in the U.S. Union, and uh, they were under attack from within and from without, and this whole without rule of law thing or Mad Max scenario uh, still has not occurred. Uh, they seem to be doing all right with their rule of law. People are still paying taxes. Uh, tickets are still being written for speeding and stuff like that. Uh, they're still uh, progressing forward, and uh, you know their their political. Uh, engine is still running just fine. Uh, their international political engine is still running just fine. And I just thought, you know, based on, uh, some of the comments you'd made about Mad Max situations and, you know, how that's not going to happen, I just thought this might have been a little bit more fuel to help you assuage some of the fears that some of these, uh, you know, worst case scenario folks, uh, are going to put out there where they think that, uh, all their problems are going to be solved when the world melts down because nobody will be there to uh, make them behave. Uh, just a thought, Jack. Hey, awesome podcast, and, and have, have a really good day. Bye. Well, it's an interesting thing to look at, and if you want to see what a state that's constantly under attack looks like, Israel's a good place to look, but it really doesn't make my point for me, as the caller would infer, though I wish it would, because I like when my point's made. There's a couple things that we have to look at here. Number one... A state being under attack does not equate to a state's infrastructure failing. So Israel, while small, it, when you have a small piece of dirt to defend, it's very easy to very heavily defend that small piece of dirt. In other words, if you were a homesteader and you had about five acres uh, and you had a couple people with you on your on your retreat and we were in an end-of-world apocalypse zombie attack scenario, a relatively easy piece of ground to defend. If you had a thousand acres, it would be much more difficult to offend with the same population. Uh, number two, Israel requires all of their citizens when they reach the age, I believe, of 18, it might be 17, uh, to go into at least they think it's two years of compulsory service. So they have a very large military comparative to their size, and that military is very, very active in both ways that I find to be very, uh, very necessary. And in some ways, I find it be at times overreaching. I'm not a huge fan of everything Israel does. I'm also not a huge enemy of everything Israel does. I think they do some things well. I think they do some things because they have to. And I think they do some things because they're frustrated and angry. And at times, abuses occur due to that. But I try to understand the situation that they're in. 
Um, the other thing that Israel has is an extensive backing by the United States. If the United States did not back Israel, things would not work out as well. When people worry about kind of the apocalypse-type scenarios and breakdowns of society, it's not that they're afraid of attack from within and without, right, from the outside and the inside at the same time. It's they're afraid that the infrastructure that exists to keep that in check will fail. So the reason Israel doesn't fail that way is the infrastructure is in place, and the infrastructure is very, very effective, and it's propped up from within by a sense of identity and a sense of survival, and without in the in the in the neighborhood of, of millions and millions of dollars that are provided to Israel in materials and aid from the United States of America. They also have a nuclear capability that they would not have if we didn't give it to them. And I don't know if that's good or bad. In some ways, there might be a lot less desire for their neighbors to attain nuclear capability. Uh, in some area, other ways, they may have already been wiped off the face of the planet if it wasn't there. I'm not here to sell geopolitics today. I'm just saying that we can't look at that one example and say that this is an example of what it looks like when a nation comes from attack within and without. Um, the other side of this is the biggest danger to a catastrophic infrastructure failure in the United States that would be man-made is economic in nature. So if we have a pandemic, that's a natural occurrence. At least we hope that it is. It's not something somebody made in a lab and screwed up. That could happen. But it's a natural biological occurrence. If we get hit by an asteroid, natural occurrence. Supervolcano, natural occurrence. These are catastrophic failures. Um, but something that we would do to ourselves is economic failure. Uh, very few nations in the world have the economic stability that Israel does. So they haven't experienced an economic failure. So the analogy is not quite on. However, it does show that a nation can be extremely pressured both by, both by external and internal forces. And if they're willing to do what needs to be done, even if they're going to screw it up sometimes, they can keep a lid on things. The question is, will we? Will we? Um, let's say, let's look back at Rodney King riots in L.A. You know what ended the Rodney King riots? Uh, Korean dry cleaners with SKSs ended the Rodney King riots because when they realized nobody was coming, they had enough. They went up on top of their stores and said, enough of this shit, and uh, they shot a few people. And once they shot a few people, the other people went, Haha, yeah, I see this guy's serious. Let's go somewhere else. And as that started to take effect, things began to wind down. Um, what do you think would have happened if something akin to the Rodney King riots would have happened in Israel? Uh, heads would have rolled instantly. I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm saying it puts a stop to it, doesn't it? And we have a track record of not doing it. We have a track record of letting things build really, really up and then going in and attack the peripheral edges. And many times we attack demonstrators like Occupy Wall Street that maybe don't need to be attacked. So we take our authoritarian foot and put it on the neck of people that are just speaking their mind. And when people actually go apeshit and start tearing things down, we take a lot longer to fix it. Hurricane Katrina. Uh, you see what I'm saying? And it's usually been citizens that put it in check. Now that's why I think that we're going to have a lot less of this zombie horde crap going on here uh, than other nations would, honestly. Because who did it in L.A.? Korean dry cleaners. That wasn't the only one, but they were the ones that were a little bit more prominent. They were the ones that said, no more. Okay? No freaking more. Well, what happened with Hurricane Andrew down by Homestead Air Force Base, Dade County, all that? Um, people, the same thing. Citizens finally said enough. They went to what was left of their property and said, I'm keeping what I have. And more people got shot than the news told you. And once people started getting shot for stealing and looting, guess what happened? The stealing and looting stopped. 
So I think it's a combination of, one, the resources of the United States, and two, the infrastructure of the people of this country. Long before prepping was cool, this is a nation where people defend what they have, and they have the ability to do so. Thank God for the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution that recognizes that right is inherent to you from your creator, not gifted to you from government. As long as we have that, I think it's going to be very hard for society to completely break down because people will try to hold it together. And as long as there's hope of that, communities will band together, and it won't be great or wonderful, but it won't be Mad Max. Could it ever happen? Sure, but it takes a knockout blow. It takes something that takes out more than 50% of the population, completely destroys the infrastructure, sends us into chaos overnight. And if that happens, God help us all. Hopefully we're as prepared as we can be, and we'll do the best we can if we make it through the initial blow, whatever it may be. Reality, though, let's prepare for the things that are likely to happen, like downward class migration, right? Like pandemics that are more uh, on the scale of a 1918 pandemic versus killing, you know, 80% of the population, that type of thing. Let's be sensible, but let's not be overconfident just because we look at a nation like Israel as an island and say that they've, they've survived in all of this calamity. Trust me, without us, they would not be where they are. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Joe here in Iowa. Hey, I'm uh, really interested in, in doing online business and all the stuff that you talked about, but I have one big problem, and that is I live in a rural area where it's just about impossible to get good Internet. So what are your thoughts about getting good, fast Internet with uh, high capacity for uploading stuff in a rural area? I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot. All you do, bye. Well, it ain't easy, and there's a couple different things that you can look at doing. One, I know a lot of people that use something like a 3G or 4G uh, uh, cell-based service, a mobile phone-based service, where they can set up their phone as a hotspot. Usually those are limited to like 5 gigabits a month, but it may be enough to do a lot of what you need to do, specifically if you stick to running your email and everything on something like a dial-up service and only use that when you're using larger files. Depends also on what you mean by uploading a lot of stuff. If you're talking about blogging and some photos and stuff, you can look at what I use at the house. Now, I use Wild Blue. I have their biggest package. I think it's 80 bucks a month. It is not great. It beats the hell out of the little 3G uh, AT&T stick that we used to use, mainly because we have multiple computers on it, and we can do things like watch YouTube videos and stuff like that. If I had to, if I had to, I could do this show from home using that service. It would not be as good, it would not be as fast, it would not be as efficient, and I might have to set the bit rate one rung lower than where I set it to be able to get through my monthly cap, maybe, but probably not. If I want to do YouTube videos and stuff like that, it is, and I'm going to be uploading more than a couple, and I'm going to be uploading videos that are 8, 9, 10 minutes long, it sucks, it's not going to do very good. The other inherent limitation to things that are satellite internet like HughesNet, WildBlue, etc., is there are certain sites that just don't work well with them. They just, I mean, our online banking site just works like crap with it. PayPal, when I'm logging in to take care of refunds or something like that at home, takes three times as long to load. And there's certain sites that we've been on, especially when they have like kind of an Ajax interface, things that are customized to you uh, that don't work well, and Skype is out. But if it's basic internet stuff, blogging photos, short video clips, it will do everything that you need. It will take a while to get used to. There's a latency issue. When you send a signal over satellite internet, think about this. It doesn't go through a cable at 75% of the speed of light uh, down to a data center uh, a couple 10,000 miles away. 
right? Somewhere between two and 10,000 miles of travel. No, it goes all the way up into outer space, bounces off a satellite, back down to Earth, does the same, does that same thing that your other one does, then comes back, goes up from a satellite and bounces back down to your dish. Totally different. So you're looking at, even when things load fast, you're looking at two to three seconds of it looks like nothing's happening while the signal transmits and responds. So there's that. So those are your two best options. Here's a third option. Can you bootstrap it using one of those for the first year or two till you build it up to an income level? And then can you look at getting an office somewhere, just even a small office space where something more like cable modem or DSL is available? There's a lot of times you could do things like this. Um, let's say I, I just could not afford an office under my current situation. I can, no problem, great landlord and all. Um, but let's say I couldn't. Let's say I couldn't afford the rent on the office. I could only afford 200 bucks a month. Talk to local businesses in your community that have storefronts that have that you know are where you can get high speed internet and ask them if they have any unused space. As little as 100 square feet that they might consider renting to you for $200 a month to set up a little on site office. If you're doing video or audio work, do your work, your recording work off site. Bring your work into the office just so that you can use the internet connection. A lot of those folks would be willing to allow you to use their existing connection if they have high-speed internet in return for the rent. There's a lot of business people right now, small businesses of all kinds, from trades to professional services, that have had to downscale their staff, that have an abundance of space, that would like money. They like money. They're already struggling. That's why they have space. Is it a permanent solution? No. But what do you really need? A small desk? a desktop or laptop computer, access to the internet, and a door you can close. If you can find that for a couple hundred bucks a month, it's probably worth it while you're building your business, and eventually you can build it to a more substantial business. And remember this, it's completely tax deductible. It's rent for your business. So there's always a way to balance things out, but just make sure that you really need what you think you need. You could even do this. Let's say you live close. And I've seen people do it. It's not my first choice. I, but I, you know what? I did it a couple times when I was up here in Arkansas when I still lived in Texas. I needed to do a show. Uh, I did not have enough bandwidth to get the show uploaded from the bug out location, which is now the homestead. But I, I had my mic, I had my laptop, I had everything that I needed to do that. So what I did, went off in the bedroom and let Dorothy do her thing in the living room, sat down on the bed, set everything up, did a show, got in the car that day, drove down to Starbucks, logged onto a Wi-Fi hotspot, uploaded the episode. Um, you know, if you're doing you know one audio podcast a day, it's probably not going to kill Starbucks for the, you to take that little bit of bandwidth off them. They're not going to care. Check your email and all while you're there. That's more of a get by till you figure out solution. But there are options like that. So those are all the options that I can give you. There really isn't anything else. Um, the other thing though is do check to see if there's any kind of a WiMAX based. Uh, wireless internet service. If you live even in a lot of rural areas now, there is high-speed internet as long as you live in a place that's flat. Uh, there's WiMAX technology that can send a signal 30 miles point to point as long as it's over relatively flat terrain. You get into a place like I live in the mountains, that stuff just doesn't work well. They haven't figured out what to do with it yet. And the people that live up in the hills, I guess there's just not enough of us to justify the infrastructure for something like Motorola Canopy, which is how a lot of this stuff is being run. Anyway, there you go. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. What advice would you give about buying a commercial property with an industrial building and converting it into a permanent homestead. Thank you. 
uh, on the surface, be damn careful. There's a, a, a couple things to deal with there. One, unless something's really wrong with the place, um, generally it's going to cost a hell of a lot more to do that than to buy a residentially zoned or rural zoned piece of property. When you look at commercial zoning, most property that has commercial zoning already on it, so it's, it's okay to run a business there, costs a lot more than an equivalent property without that, unless it's in a place where I guess things have decayed to a point where people are just trying to unass it and get rid of it. So that's one thing. Two, you need to look at your local zoning ordinances and laws. It may not be legal for you to set up a residential residence on an industrial property without getting it rezoned. And while most of the time people have trouble getting property that's not zoned for uh, business, rezoned to a business property, I've never tried to do it the other way. And I imagine it may be just as difficult because the municipality may be giving up a tax base because an industrial zone piece of property is probably going to carry higher property taxation. So by rezoning it to residential, Uh, they have more resistance. It's not just we're going to irritate people by putting a business where there wasn't one before, but now we're going to devalue our own property to a point we're going to get less of property tax. But if you're in a situation where it's falling apart anyway and no one's going to pay the tax, they might be happy to do it. But check that first. My bigger concern, when you buy a piece of property, if it is contaminated with some kind of chemical uh, that the government eventually discovers and gets involved with and says, you must clean it up, I don't care if it's only this little tiny spot this big and it's going to cost $100 million, you are responsible for the cleanup. You are responsible for the cleanup. Uh, so when you buy a property like that, Anything that's not discovered that gets discovered later as far as industrial waste or land damage or biological contamination or damage to endangered species habitat, you're left holding the hot potato. So you really need a thorough inspection, something that makes the average home inspection look like a joke. You need uh, to probably have a contract that says anything that was previously existing that requires this, you know, any type of extensive cleanup or is in violation of any federal or state or local ordinance uh, that was delivered without disclosure at the time of the sale by the seller remains the responsibility inherently of the seller, and you still are probably screwed because the government's still going to come after you, and all that would do is give you the recourse to sue the original seller, seller for the damages that were extended against, against you by the state or local authority that in force the cleanup. You see what I mean? It's a mess. Now, if industrial means that this was a company that, I don't know, man. I mean, any type of industry that I think of, I can think of the potential for toxic waste, whether it's you know a mechanic shop. Is there a spot in the back full of oil that eventually somebody's going to discover? And they're going to say you have to remove you know 500 cubic yards of dirt and replace it, and you have to pay for the disposal of the container. I, I don't know if it's an office building. There could be some minor stuff. But you really, really have to be careful here. And you really have to think about why you're doing it. And if it's dirt cheap, like let's say it's an old warehouse and five acres of land in some area, and they're selling it for $25,000, are they selling it just because they're cash-strapped and screwed? Or are they selling it because they know there's a problem that they can't afford to fix? And most of the time when I've seen people buy industrial properties, it's the second one. There's something they've hidden And it's very, very difficult for you to get money from a corporation. going. And a lot of times, it's a corporation going out of business. So Joe Blow owns Joe Blow, Inc. And Joe Blow, Inc. is going under. 
and he's liquidating his assets, and he has this piece of commercial property, and he dumps it over to you. He then closes down Joe Blow Inc. The corporation no longer exists, and he goes and opens up Joe Blow Inc. number two over here, and it's a new corporation. And when you go to him, he goes, ah, that's not me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm Joe Blow. I'm not Joe Blow Inc. Joe Blow Inc. is out of business. Call my attorney goodbye. So you've got to be real careful now. If everything checks out, if you know you can get their zoning done, you know, you check with the local ordinances and it's not going to be a problem. You get a, you, I would want that in writing. If I went to the local council and they said, yeah, we're going to have no problem with this, I'd say, I'm looking at buying this. This is my intentions. Before I do that, I would like to get some type of a letter of intent or something that says this is going to be possible to do. And if they don't want to do that, don't think they're going to rubber stamp it later after you buy it. Um, and then I would want to have the, the, the place thoroughly inspected and I would want some kind of, uh, of a, of a form from the existing tenant stating that if there is anything that wasn't disclosed or unknown that was done due to their operation that's caused damage that's going to require cleanup or whatever that they're responsible of it. So here's what I'm saying. Get a freaking real estate attorney if you're going to do this. Get a good real estate attorney that's experienced with this kind of transactions. Bring up the concerns I've given you. He'll probably bring up 20 more I'm not even thinking of, but be damn careful. I'm not saying don't do it. Just be really careful with that and make sure you're not being suckered. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Love the show, sir. Say, wanted your opinion on kind of a concept of uh, putting too many eggs in one basket. I spent some time building up what I consider to be a pretty sweet little bug-out bag and uh, got hired on to a new job that was taking me about, still is, 20 miles one way, uh, so 40 miles round trip each day. And I decided that I wanted to put my, uh, you know, my bug-out bag, a little medium-sized Alice pack with... All the goodies I'd been collecting, including a lot of gifts and things that I'd put together over the years. So, anywho, the thing got stolen out of my vehicle right in front of my house and uh, really, really stung. So, it made me so mad. I haven't really been willing to put anything in my vehicle anymore, but I still have this nagging feeling of, you know, if I don't have a way to uh, make it somewhere, I at least, you know, would like to have some stuff, change of clothes, you know, and all that kind of thing in my vehicle, um, and maybe some things to get me by a little bit more long-term if I can't get home for a week or so. So, wanted your thoughts on that. Um, it's kind of a similar side of things. Also wanted your thoughts on everyday carry. When is enough enough? Um, been really getting into uh, making sure I have all kinds of little things on me that, uh, we all talk about and have heard a lot about, but at some point I'm trying to figure out <laughs> where to draw the line, you know. Uh, is two knives too many? Uh, you know, two is one and one is none, but uh, that starts to get kind of heavy in the pockets. So anyway, hope that wasn't too long. Don't necessarily expect to hear myself on the air, but sure would love your feedback on that in some uh, some form someday. Thank you, sir. Interesting questions, and it's interesting the way they'll tie together by the time I'm done with it. Let's start out with the Bob. First of all, I think that you just need to suck it up, and you need to put together a new one, and you need to have one, and everybody needs to have one. Uh, how do you prevent it from being stolen from your vehicle? When you go somewhere, take it out of your vehicle, and put it somewhere else where it's safe. Um, generally speaking, a trunk is a pretty safe place in most vehicles. Uh, people don't know there's anything in a truck, a trunk. Uh, I, I haven't seen a lot of vehicles broken into specifically just to get into the trunk unless somebody cased it and knew what they were doing. Usually people break into vehicles because they want a quick score, they look in the window, they see something. Now, if they break in to steal your stereo and there's a button to pop the trunk, they may very well do that. 
A lot of newer, newer vehicles, like my Jetta, has a thing where I can lock the trunk button. So just because you got in the vehicle doesn't mean you can get in the trunk. You need the key to unlock the trunk button. So if that exists, keep your shit in your trunk and make sure it's locked. A lot of us, like me, drive pickup trucks. And when you drive a pickup truck, your stuff is almost always visible. So some things you can do uh, is, one, take your bag, build it out, put it on the floor of your truck in the back if you have like a four-seater truck and put some blankets or something over top of it when you can't remove it from the vehicle so that it doesn't look, you know, you look in there and you see a nice tactical bag, right, or a bag of any kind. There might be something in there. It's it, it's worth the thief popping the lock or busting the window to get in. So that's one thing you can do. Uh, another thing you can do is put in a very good lockable toolbox in the back of pickup trucks. And it's probably the route we're about to go. I'm probably going to put them in both trucks, and that way I can keep not just bug-out bags, but other materials that generally would be in the way in a pickup truck. So that's another thing. Um, but as far as like if you're working somewhere where you have a locker or an area that's your own, you're probably better off every time. you. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but when you get there, take your bag, put it there with you. When you get home, take your bag, bring it in the house. When you go out in the morning, put your bag back in your truck. There's There's a lot of reason to do this, and that is that especially at work, if you have a place you can keep it and no one's going to have a problem with you bringing it in, then if something goes wrong at work, maybe you can't get to your car and you have all your stuff, right? So there's that. I, I do have a little bit of concern with bringing it in the house every night, though. Here's why. If your house burns down, you don't grab it on the way out the door when you're trying to save yourself and others, that was the one little bit of stuff that you might have. So I'm, I like having some additional redundancy with things off-site. So those are just some thoughts. But I think that, okay, if you're going to own anything, you're going to risk theft, If people have someone break into their house every day and steal their TV sets, and when that happens, they don't go, well, damn it, I'm never buying another TV again. So at some point, you just have to kind of suck it up and say it sucks that there's scum in the world. Do what you can to minimize the potential for a repeat of it and uh, and go from there. Um, so those are, those are some things you can do. Now, as far as EDC, well, if you carry a bug-out bag and you have it with you everywhere you go, your EDC doesn't need to be as extensive because a lot of the stuff that you would need is there. I do carry at all times at least two knives, sometimes three, just depends on how I feel. But generally, I carry a, a knife with a, you know, a, a folder in my, my pocket on my right side, and I carry my neck knife. And I generally have those on me at all times. Um, I have a little bit of stuff in like my wallet and all. Um, I've done whole shows on EDC. I believe you should always have a light on you, a knife, and a way to make fire and some sort of cordage, uh, which do things like, like, here's the thing with EDC. It doesn't always have to be, like, extra. It can be just replacement of something that exists. So take your, your boot laces, your shoelaces, whatever, replace them with paracord, burn the ends, what have you. Um, if you, that way, if you ever need the cordage, then you don't even have to give up your laces. You can pull your laces out of your shoes or your boots, pull your inner cords out, throw the jacket back in there to serve as your shoelace. It's plenty strong enough for that, and you have all the cordage from all those individual internal strands. Remember, your biggest EDC, though, is what's between your ears, right? The gray matter between your ears is the most important thing. In most urban situations, you can fabricate most of what you need as long as you can make fire, have some sort of cordage to start with, have a knife and a light. Those are the big ones to me. If you get stuck somewhere and it's dark, having a little pen light like the Streamlight Stylus Pro is what I carry uh, or any of the other great little lights is so huge because now at least I can see what I'm dealing with. 
You know, think of being stuck in an elevator with emergency power out too, and it's dark in there. At least being eternal lights on. Um, being able to create a fire for signal or to keep warm if you're stuck somewhere. All of these things are important. Um, things like food and extra water and purification, I always carry that stuff in a, in a, in a bob, right? I carry that in a bu you know, bug out bag, get home bag, however you want to call it. Um, so that's it. I don't carry a ton of EDC. If I'm walking down the street and you see me, I don't look like any different than anybody else with the, the everyday carry stuff that I carry. I do carry pepper spray uh, because I believe if you carry a lethal weapon, you should carry a non-lethal alternative because there are instances where clearly lethal force is not necessary, but some force is. And I'd rather spray you in the face and watch you roll around on the ground than risk a physical altercation because I think you're not armed and end up with a knife in my ribs. Because you actually were armed. I would rather spray you on the face, watch you roll on the ground, and turn around before your buddy sticks me with a knife, right, and spray him too, or if I, he pulls a knife, shoot his ass, then get in a physical altercation with you, even if I can take you out and your buddy comes up, puts a knife on my kidneys. So I do believe in carrying multiple methods of self-defense with you. But that's kind of enough, and then anything else you want kind of goes from there and fits in from there. Great questions. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Stonewort from the forum. I'm uh, I'm active duty military, which means I have to move about every two years or so, and I find this presents uh, somewhat of a challenge, being that it's hard to buy land or to improve anything, and uh, also to prepare bulky uh, amounts of storage and preparation equipment. So I was hoping that you might have some suggestions on what you can do if you have a pretty mobile lifestyle where you can't exactly bring it all with you and you don't have a, a homestead location. Thanks. Well, there's a lot of people that have this issue. They're always around, so they can only do so much. But those of you in the military, here's the thing to think about. Um, as long as you're in the military, you're going to be first fed, first medicated, first provided, first taken care of. So the danger for a military person is not being prepared for planned separation from the military or um, not being prepared for unplanned separation from the military. I know some of you guys are great soldiers and airmen and what have you, and you'd have the tendency to think they'll never get rid of me. I'll never get fired. I'll never get put out due to some type of misconduct or something like that or what have you. Well, back when I was in the military in, in the early 90s, um, We had a program called QMP program, Quality Management Program, that got ramped up and put on steroids. And I remember guys that had been in the Army for 12 years that were sergeants. And by then, you should be a staff sergeant in E6, you know, in, in their eyes. And they just hadn't made it for one reason or another. And uh, we're basically told, okay, you can get out this year and we'll give you some money, or you can get out next year and you'll get nothing. And do you want your money in a lump sum, or do you want your money over time? Well... That was due to scale backs on some things and some other, you know, and some of it was good. Some of these guys needed to get out. Some of these guys were people that were not in a cut and dry situation like I gave you in the beginning. It's like, okay, um, you're up for promotion and you might or might not get promoted in the next 18 months. If you do, you can stay. If you don't, you'll get out with nothing or you can take the money now. And those guys, you know, so it was good and bad of it. My point is when confronted with downsizing, The military threw people out and bought people off. There's no reason to believe that can't happen again in any given branch, especially with, and it was always certain jobs, 
right? There were jobs that people had in the military where they weren't eligible for it. It's like you're, you're going to get out with QMP because you're going to throw you out for not getting advanced quickly enough. Eventually, you know, nothing, period. It was select jobs they really wanted to downsize because they were highly overstaffed there. And there were certain jobs that were so understaffed that even if you weren't quite where they thought you should be from a promotion standpoint, they'd let you stick around a lot longer because they freaking needed people to do that. Um, in those positions, very few people actually met that criteria because your promotion points were lower because they were under strength. All I'm saying is you can end up thrown out of the military like you can any job. So what it makes sense for me from a land standpoint, from a house standpoint, from a homestead standpoint for people in the military to do is look for the piece of property you eventually want to live on and start paying for that property. Now, you can probably get great terms. You have what's perceived by lenders as a guaranteed employment. And that way, when you get out, you got a place to go to, even if it doesn't have a house on it yet. So to me, with the military, you're better off finding the piece of property you want to call home eventually and paying for it while you're in service so that when you walk out into that great world where you think everybody's going to want to hire you because you're former military and nobody wants to hire to, you've at least got a place to go. And when you go on leave, you can kind of start structuring some things and stuff like that. So that's where I think you should really focus on the long term. Also, save the shit out of money while you can. I mean, soldiers find all kinds of ways to piss away money. Any way you can save money, do it. Uh, try to try to leave with as much cash in your pocket as you can. Try to leave owning some property. Look at your, your time plan. If you plan on being in for 20 years and you've been in for 18, that's one thing. If you plan to be in for 20 years and you've been in for two, that's totally different. If you've been in for two and you're going to be for four, and you're 22 years old, hey, you know, you got time in your life to figure out what to do. Just try to save as much cash as you can. Don't focus so much on buying something. But if you, you've been in for, you know, got 15 years ahead of you in the military, that's plenty of time that when you walk away with a military retirement, you have a piece of pay-for property. And even at that point, you might have already started construction. So that's where to look at it. The other thing, to though, is look at short-term needs. Uh, making sure you, I mean, I don't care if you're in the military, you should still have a good bug out bag, you should still have good EDC and stuff like that. Be prepared when you go on leave for things to go wrong. You know, military personnel tend to get a little bit spoiled by the whole thing I started out with. The military will generally help you. If you're on leave and you get stuck somewhere, you call your commander, they'll say, here's what resources are available to you. All you got to do is get here, get to this USO at this airport. They'll help you out. Get over to this other base and they'll help. So, you know, it's not always the case that you can do that, though. So you really got to think about when you're on leave being prepared, especially when you travel. Because, uh, you know, when you don't come back on time to your job, they get mad at you. When you don't get come back to your job on time in the military, uh, they call it AWOL. So we, we have to think about things like that. Um, but the big, bulky, heavy-duty, long-term preps uh, just aren't in the cards for you in the military at your current location. Finding a place, if you can find a place with a good structure and good neighbors to look out for you, and it's got a great basement, and you can start to build up preps there while you're in the military, and if something goes wrong and you leave either by choice or by necessity, then it's waiting for you, that makes a hell of a lot more sense to me. Great question, though. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Charles in Iowa. I've got a homesteading question specifically related to dogs, uh, but not my own. Uh, picked up a piece of property... And it's back along a, a long drive, but there's a neighbor there also at the, at the end of the long drive, and it's just our two properties. 
and they have a couple of American Bulldogs, very nice dogs, athletic dogs, I mean, nice-looking dogs. However, they do not like strangers and consider my family and myself to be strangers, particularly me. Uh, so anytime we're on the property, and, and it's just timbered land right now, raw land, uh, they absolutely go berserk if they're out of their kennel uh, running around. And, and uh, to the point where, you know, they will try to pretty much pin me up against the vehicle. Um, I've never observed them to do that to my wife. And, and the, the owners of the dog have a young granddaughter, and they say, oh, the dogs are great kids. But, yeah, then maybe that's true when they're right there to control them. But when it's just me or, or just strangers, they are... Um, pretty intimidating and so i'm just concerned about how to handle that obviously i need to speak to the owners and and just let them know my concerns but but aside from that when it's me and the dog or particularly my kids is what i'm worried about how do i take control of that situation and is there anything that i can do to make those dogs respect me and my family and my property a little bit I uh, appreciate your thoughts on that, Jack. I suppose as more people go out and do the homesteading thing, this is going to be a conflict that could potentially arise, so I'm sure this would apply to some other folks out there as well. Thanks, Jack. Okay, I'm not really sure on, on exactly what to do, but just let me give you some ideas. Number one, if the dogs don't like strangers and they view you as strangers, the simplest solution is to become no longer strangers to the dogs. Now, let's look at a parallel. If you walk up onto my property uh, right now, unannounced and uninvited, and my dog Max is outside and I'm not there with you, he's probably going to lay into you. He's not just going to bite or not just bark at you and try to scare you away. If, if, if you don't back off very, very slowly, and if you try to get into the house or something like that, or you're perceived as a threat, he's probably going to lay into you really, really good, and you're going to have 120 pounds of German Shepherd on top of you. And, and that's his job. If you walk up on the property and I'm there with you, he might bark at you a little bit. When I tell him, hey, he's okay, he's going to walk up to you and sniff you, and you are now friends. Now, you come back unannounced in the future. He may be a little aggressive until he figures out who you are. But pretty much, once you've been introduced, he's going to be pretty cool with you. If you get introduced multiple times, so like my neighbor up the street, she's not there very often, but she's there once in a while, If we're not home and she needed to go into the house, if we gave her the key, she could walk right in the door. She kind of has to introduce herself to him again, but he'll let her in the house. Guarantee you if a stranger shows up again, 120 pounds of German Shepherd attached to the forearm and the face. So a lot of times dogs that are conditioned to keep strangers away, if they're introduced to the, quote, strangers in the presence of the owner and they're pet and cuddled and talked to and they become familiar, then you're no longer a stranger. It may be difficult while you're living this kind of dual life where you're away and you may have to be constant reintroduction. But, I mean, I would talk to the owner and say, look, we need to fix these dogs to where they're not aggressive towards us because we belong here. And the one way to position to this the owner is to tell them, actually, I'm glad your dogs are aggressive. Because if your dogs are helping, if your dogs are aggressive, they're not just helping protect your property, they're helping protect mine, and I want to be a good neighbor. But let's have kind of a family day with the dogs where everybody gets together. 
Now, you got to make your decision. These are your kids. An English Bulldog is not generally a big, mean-ass dog or anything, but they are extremely strong with extremely strong jaws. And it's your kid, and if you're afraid that they're going to get bit, then maybe you don't do that, but that's one avenue. One thing I know for a fact makes dogs go away really fast is pepper spray. So let's say we've tried to resolve everything with the owner of the dogs as best we can. You say, hey, look, I don't want them on my property attacking my kids or me. If they come on my property, I'm going to tell them to leave. I'm going to try to be nice to them. But if they don't leave, they're going to get sprayed. So you need to control your dogs, man. I tried to work this out. And, you know, and then own up to it and mean it. And you don't have to don't soak the freaking dog. Okay, don't do it. I had uh, about three years ago now, guy lives down the road from me up here, has a uh, pit bull mix, and she's pretty aggressive, and we were walking down the road, and we walked right past the front of his house, and she came out, and she laid down to the ground growling at us. I had one hand on a 9mm, because if she went into me or my wife, she was getting holes, and I had another hand, I had some pepper spray. I was very, very confident. It seemed like it was just going to be enough, the confidence alone. But as we started to walk past her, she started to move like she was going to go. And I gave one little squirt of the pepper spray. I didn't even hit her with it. I hit it about an inch in front of her nose on the ground. And she didn't like that, and she backed off. And if she would have came forward, she would have got it full force. And if that wouldn't have been enough, she would have got holes. My point, it's much easier to tell your neighbor, dude, you need to control your dog. You might want to wash his eyes out, spray him with pepper spray. Then, dude, here's your dog with four holes in it. So that's something, but that is a, unless you, like when I did this, it wasn't because I wanted the dog to respect me. It's because I believed that the dog was on the verge of attacking. And I was trying to defuse the attack. If you just do this, then the dog will hate you. Right? So in this situation, I didn't blast the dog in the face. The dog got a little whiff. The dog got an understanding that, hey, this guy means business. We haven't any problems with her since. But those are two areas I would look at. I'll also point to you that it's not your responsibility to fence his dogs out. It's his responsibility to fence his dogs in. And you need to have, if this is going to be an ongoing problem, you need to have an in-depth conversation that says, hey, look, one thing you need to understand I like your dogs. I don't want to harm your dogs. I do not want to be a bad neighbor. But if your dogs are going to consistently be a problem, you need to take care of it. And if at any time I ever feel one of my children or my family members or my guests are physically endangered, your dog's in danger. I'm armed and I'll do it if I have to. I don't want to. I really don't want to. So let's see if we can work this out another way. But my gut, especially with English Bulldogs, They are aggressive towards strangers, but they're actually very affable, loving animals. They really are. They're great dogs. And if you can just have a good both families together, get-together, meeting, friend-making relationship with the dogs, they're probably going to stop being aggressive towards you in the first place. They're going to probably start running up to you with that little freaking stub tail, hoping that you're going to give them a treat. So try that. Try the good neighbor approach first, and then there's some other things that are your backups. It may be necessary to fence your property. I mean, I don't know. I, I would have a hard time bearing the expense for somebody else's animal. Um, I would say you need to put a freaking yard in and keep the damn dogs under your control. Um, but, I mean, try to do it in a neighborly way first, and try the whole let the meet and greet, pet, love, belly rub. I mean, once that's done... Most dogs tend to have pretty good memories. And you might have to, every time you go visit, go see the neighbors first and go through it a second time so the dogs you know, realize who you are. Um, once you live there, my instinct is it wouldn't be a problem at all. They'll become accustomed to you. Let's take another question. 
Hey, Jack. This is Mike in uh, Tomball, Texas. Uh, my wife and I have decided that we're trying to uh, save up the next couple of years and uh, start a homestead and uh, try to be as self-sufficient as possible. My big concern that, uh, uh, as far as an expense that I can't get a handle on is health care, uh, health insurance. Just wondering if you had any comments on that, if you're in a uh, lower income bracket and you're used to a higher health care plan, higher health care plan, is it just a matter of getting used to what you can get or if uh, you have any tips on that? Appreciate it. Love the show. Thanks. Oh, that can't be a problem. Didn't Obamacare fix all that and everybody gets health care for free now? Okay, uh, let's be serious. Um, I'll tell you what I do, and I'll tell you it's an ongoing issue. What we do, we have a very, very high deductible plan that's primarily for catastrophic loss. So our health insurance is designed if I had a heart attack or we got one of us got diagnosed with cancer and we ended up in the hospital for those expenses to not bankrupt us. If we go to the doctor, we pay the bill. And I'll, I'll give you some thoughts on that in a minute. We just That's just a fact. We're going to pay the bill. With that, we have what's called a health savings account, or HSA. And the way that works is we deposit money into that account, and it works kind of like a retirement account, where you, but you can spend the money. We have a debit card, credit card, debit card attached to it. So if I go to the doctor for a routine issue, let's say I had a cold and I decided it was bad enough I needed to go to the doctor. I, I probably wouldn't, but this is the example. And the doctor says, okay, that'll be $40, please. I just hand them the card. They charge it. All that money's tax deductible. That's a tax-deferred expense out of the HSA. The insurance premiums are not deductible unless they exceed your income or, or, or high enough to go above a certain portion of your income. I don't qualify for that. With a lower income, you might. So that's another thing to look at is you might get a tax deduction for it. As far as getting used to a lower quality of... I, I, I See, here's the thing. Just so you know, if I was put in charge of the money, I said, Jack's fix the health care system. First thing I would do is take all of this freaking health insurance that, you know, you have a $10 copay on your on your doctor's visit, a $5 copay on your prescription, and all, all this shit where the insurance covers every damn thing, and I would immediately outline. There would be no more. And I would close down the pig trough of insurance money that the, the doctors and the hospitals and the pharmaceutical companies feed on. And all of a sudden, healthcare would become dramatically more affordable overnight. And the type of insurance that would exist would be what I have. So I, I'm not even looking to try to, to, to match that. Now, I know there's people that have things like um, ongoing expenses that are high. You know, somebody like a diabetic or sometimes the maintenance medication that it's not just because the doctor told you you, need, you really needed to survive and things like that. And for those people, um, you, you got to do whatever you got to do to make buy, you know, to get by. For most healthy people, though, what I do is probably going to be your best bet. And let me tell you how affordable paying uh, for your services can be. Uh, my wife recently, when she kind of switched over because she saw the results I had to the whole paleo thing, uh, at first had some really kind of nasty heartburn as her body adjusted to this change in diet. And it gave her some chest pain. And it was enough that she was like, this could be my heart. 
right? This could be my heart. I don't know if it is or not, but she was concerned. And then we checked her, checked her blood pressure, which, of course, is 20 points higher than it normally is for her because she's freaked out that it could be her heart. So that's going to raise your blood pressure. So um, being a good husband, I'm like, you know, we need to go. If you are worried, we need to go check, get you checked out. We'll, we'll go to emergency room. I'm like, screw that. We found a local clinic. We called up. They said, we're walking. Come on down. We walked in. We were seen in five minutes. They gave her a freaking EKG. And we said, okay, we're paying cash. How much will it be? $43. $43. There you go. And if you can get that level of care, imagine most routine medical care. You can get very affordably. If you'll go, you know, shop around a little bit first for things like, you know, well woman checkups and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, well baby checkups if you have kids. And you, you can find that a lot of that stuff can be very affordable. You take the money you would have spent on health insurance and you put it into your HSA. It's there if you need it. It's tax deductible, and if you do it year after year after year after year, and you build up kind of a war chest of healthcare funds, and you reach 59 and a half or whatever, I think it's 59 and a half, just like an IRA, and you decide you don't need it for healthcare, you want your money, once you cross retirement threshold, it's your money, you can do whatever you want with it. To me, this makes a lot more sense than spending, you know, I know people that are spending six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month for health insurance and they don't even use it. Well, and what I mean by no, they don't use it is they'll never, they'll never have that much of expense. And if they could cut it to three or four hundred dollars and then they could take the, you know, even half of the difference and put it into their HSA, pay for their incidental expenses out of their HSA, cover catastrophic loss, and build up a war chest to self-insure, and hopefully something better will come along. Then the other thing, if you have a low income, like you say you're going to go be a homesteader or what have you, and I don't know what kind of income you're going to have there, but if you have a relatively low income uh, and you're not employed, many states have programs that you can get into Uh, that provide low-cost health insurance. I'm talking about free health insurance. I'm talking about Medicaid. Uh, I'm talking about you know people that make as a family under $30,000 a year. A lot of times they'll have a program that covers your family for $150. Bucks. Maybe it's not the Cadillac program that you're used to, but at least you're covered under catastrophic loss. And a lot of times you can have an HSA in, a co in association with those. So the HSA is really a great thing. And it's a good way to get a tax deduction from expenses that normally wouldn't be tax deductible. In fact, even if you don't spend the money, it becomes tax deferred. So you don't have to spend the money out of an HSA. As soon as you put it in there, it goes into a tax deferred status. But remember, at retirement age, you can get it back. That's the best solution I could come up with because I'm in the same boat uh, as a lot of you guys out there. I can't see spending $900 a month for health insurance just to get me a copay on an office visit I might have once a year uh, or to get prescription benefits for you know $75 worth of prescription medications that my wife might use over, over three months. Those of you in different, uh, let's say, risk categories or situations, you may have to do some other things. I'm just not familiar with that. Most states also have like what they call a high-risk pool. Even Obamacare actually did create kind of a high-risk pool for people in that area. And no longer can you be denied for pre-existing conditions. Those are actually some good things about Obamacare. Uh, I think that program's going to get repealed. I really do. I do not believe Barack Obama will win re-election. And I think uh, the Senate will go over to the Republicans 
and the, the presidency will go over to a Republican. And I think with all of the promises, if it doesn't get repealed, uh, th there's going to be some real problems. There's going to be some real problems. Hopefully you'll get replaced with something better, but I don't know. I'm not really about politics here. I'm about surviving daily life under the current circumstances. That's the best way to do it. Anyway, I'm happy to be back here in, uh, in, in, uh, in our Arkansas. Uh, I got to tell you, um, I went out to SHOT Show. I had fun. I saw a lot of great people. Those of you that came to the dinner on Thursday, I enjoyed meeting you guys so much. I met so many of you, those who I met. Um, it, it, most of you should just send me an email and say, hey, I was the guy that this or that, uh, and I'll put you in my little kind of special file of people that I've met so that I stay in touch with you in the future. Um, and it was that was great. Uh, seeing Tiffany and Rich and Karen Hood and, and her friend Gala, that was all great. Uh, met with some folks from Brunel's, that was great. Uh, went to a lot of different booths, saw a lot of different stuff, really cool stuff at the Caltech booth, went to Media Day, got to shoot the Browning uh, uh, remake of the Winchester Model 71 and 340 at Winchester, and I was smacking freaking bowling pins at 125 yards with iron sights with it. That was great. But you know what? Honestly, I, I wish I would have stayed here. I, I want you guys to know that. I love doing this show every day. I love being with you guys every day through this virtual presence. Uh, I love where I live. I do not like big cities. And when I walked around Las Vegas, I looked at that place and I thought, if the shit ever hits the fan, this place is screwed. There's almost no local resources there. The damn thing might as well be an island. And it is kind of an island oasis surrounded by desert, fueled by gambling money. I'm like, man, I never want to be in a place like this if things go awry. But I just don't like big cities. And I don't like gambling. And I don't like noise. And I don't like all that stuff. I like the life that I have now. And I'm really glad to be back here. And that kind of brings me to my point. Um, we've got some things coming up. You guys have been asking about the thing in Asheville, North Carolina. That may not be happening now. I've got to talk to the organizer of that show today. There's been some problems there. But we're going to have more get-togethers and more greetings. I'll have more details coming out this week. Dorothy and I are thinking about putting something together at the Gray Lake, right near where we live here in Arkansas. It'd be easy to fly in to a place like Little Rock and drive down. We're going to want to get some prospective headcounts. I've been talking to Bill Wilson at Midwest Permaculture. He is going to want to run a PDC probably sometime in the fall that will just be for survival podcast members. A PDC is generally over a thousand bucks. This is going to be the seven to eight hundred dollar range. So you're getting the PDC and getting together. But I want to get together with people from the audience. I want to spend time with you. I like I got the Liberty Forum coming up. I'll be putting out tomorrow a way you can get a discount if you're going there. That's in New Hampshire in February. I like to do those things, but what I really like to do is I like to get together with you guys. And I'm going to keep figuring out ways to make that happen, to travel around to get, because this is how I feel after SHOT Show. It was fun, but I would have rather taken the resources in time, and even if I had just set up a thing at like a Spring Hill Suites and said you can rent a suite there, they have a common area and grills, and we're just going to hang out for a long weekend, I would have rather done that than go to SHOT Show. Uh, this show is about you, the audience. I wanted you guys to know that. I wanted you to know I'm glad to be back. And I'll be back tomorrow answering your questions by email. Uh, not that they'll get on the air because i got a big backlog already coming into this year. But if you want to submit stuff for the email show, remember, the email address is jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put question or comment or article for Jack, something like that in the subject line to help me filter it out and get it so it goes in the queue and it gets reviewed. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of The Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution.